There you go. Praise the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. We will be in the Gospel of Mark this morning. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. You're looking at verses 21 through 28. Hear the word of the Lord. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. As my wife will tell you, I like to-do lists. (laughs) And to their chagrin, my children, when they were growing up, even received to-do lists from me every Saturday morning. And the reason why I like to-do lists is because they help me prioritize and accomplish what needs to be done. Just very straightforward and simple. Um, and I'm, as we look at this passage, what I saw in this was that another example of that Jesus worked by a to-do list as well. But his list was much different than ours. Um, as you would expect, our lists compare, uh, pale in comparison to his. We have things that need to get done each and every day, but in reality, most of them would not be characterized as being life-changing, right? My vacuuming the house or my cleaning up the leaves outside, that's not going to change the world. It'll just help me upkeep the, uh, the value of my property. But Jesus, on the other hand, came into the world with a to-do list that had a transformational purpose. And his was multifaceted, this mission that Jesus had. And when it was fully executed, it would end up altering the entirety of human history, everything that he does and and did on this earth. And just think about some of the things that were on Jesus' to-do list. Matthew 3.15 tells us that he came to fulfill all righteousness. Mark 138 tells us that he came to preach and proclaim the gospel of God. Luke 19.10 says that he came to seek and save the lost. Luke 4.18 tells us that he came to proclaim the liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to give and to get set at liberty those who are oppressed. John 10.10 says that he came 
to give his sheep life and to give it to them abundantly. John 5.30 said that he came to do the will of the Father who sent him. John 14.9 says he came to reveal the Father to his people. John 12.28 says that he came to manifest and glorify the name of God before his people. John 17.8 says he came to give the words of the Father to his people. John 18.37 says that he came to bear witness to the truth. And Matthew 1.21 tells us that he came to save his people from their sins. Now that is quite a list. None of our lists would ever compare to anything like that. And that's only, of course, just a sampling of all that Jesus came to achieve. If we took the time to go through the scriptures, uh, we would fill page after page of more purposes that Jesus came to do and to accomplish. But the one item on his list that we will be focusing on in our study this morning is the one that we find in 1 John 3, verse 8. And this is what it says. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. Jesus came to destroy, excuse me, in plural, the works of the devil. So with that, let's take a closer look at Mark 1, verses 21 through 28. So in the passage that I just read, at this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has come onto the scene after being introduced to all Judea and all Jerusalem by the preaching of John the Baptist. Having lived in obscurity for 30 years at this point, since his birth in Bethlehem, this is the point at which Jesus starts his public ministry. And just prior to the start of this ministry, Jesus goes through his own rite of passage, if you remember. He comes out publicly and he's baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And then right after that, by the power of the Spirit, he's led into the wilderness, 40 days of temptation at the hand of Satan himself. But then after overcoming all of that, and after a six-month period, which takes place between verse 13 and verse 14, Jesus returns to his home region of Galilee to begin his ministry in earnest. Now, in between verse 13 and verse 14, John the Baptist has been arrested. So he is no longer preaching out in the Judean wilderness. It's as if John's ministry is done from a public standpoint, and now Jesus enters and takes over, and he starts to begin his. And Jesus, at this point, he goes north, because we, if we remember where Judea is, Judea is in the southern region of Israel, and this is where Jesus is at the time when he sees John the Baptist for his baptism. But then at that point, after the arrest, Jesus goes north and he goes back to his own hometown, his home, home region, I should say, of Galilee. And as he launched his Galilean ministry, Jesus immediately went about the business of accomplishing two of the more important line items on his to-do list. And that we see in verses 14 and 15, which is the proclaiming of the gospel of God to the people of Israel, calling them to repentance. And in verses 16 through 20, the calling of his first disciples. This is where he's walking along the shoreline and he calls Andrew and Peter and James and John to begin to follow him. So truly, Jesus is beginning his ministry in earnest by calling disciples after himself and beginning to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God is in your midst. 
Matthew actually gives us a bit more insight into this time period when he writes this in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 4. He says, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So Jesus is actively involved in his ministry. He hits the road running. Teaching ministry, healing ministry, calling ministry. And it's in this light that the context of this beginning of his ministry that we pick up where we are in Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 21. And notice what it says in verse 21. It says, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So we all know that Capernaum is that small village uh, that is located in Galilee. It was actually the village of the prophet Nahum. The prophet Nahum actually came from there as well. Uh, and uh, was uh, located right on the Sea of Galilee in that uh, it was a major fishing town. So apparently it says that they had multiple 100-foot piers stretching out into the water for the fishermen to be working. They had an 8-foot seawall that was about a half a mile long, all in this basically harbor area that was home to many fishermen that worked the Sea of Galilee. And because of that, it was also one of the major uh, outposts for the Roman authorities. They had their outposts there, and they also had a tax collection uh, office there, of which we know later on in the gospel is manned by a man named Matthew. And of course, that's set up there because as the fish come in, that means it's commerce, and that has to be taxed. So it was a great revenue stream for the Romans, and it was a place for, obviously, the Israelites to make their livelihood. And of course, that's where Peter and Andrew were in doing their work. So they're in Capernaum, and it says that they, that they enter into the synagogue on the Sabbath. You know, that being, of course, beginning on Friday night, and it lasts until Saturday evening. And so in the morning on Saturday is when the people generally gather in the synagogue for their services. Now, the synagogue, as we also know from history, that came into being at the Babylonian exile. When the Babylonian exile happened, of course, the temple was destroyed and the Jews had no place to go for worship. So what they began to do is they began to set up in each township where they had a population of Jews, a, a place of meeting, which they called the synagogue. Um, uh, it, was, it was there for prayer, for worship, for reading of God's word and the teaching of God's word. So much kind of like this, this being a, a little synagogue. And uh, the rule was wherever they established what was called a quorum of at least 10 men, ages 13 and older, is where they would establish a synagogue. So any place that you had a Jewish population with 10 men, ages 13 and older, they would create such a place. So by the time Jesus came, every Jewish community had a synagogue. And it was run by an administrator, kind of like what we see in the story about Jairus. He was, he was someone who actually took care of the synagogue. He wasn't a teacher himself, but he's actually the administrator, the manager of it. Every, every synagogue had that. And at each synagogue, the teachers varied. <clears throat> they would have people that would be teaching there, and would, uh, they would often make use of itinerant preachers. And that's the reason why Jesus was able to come in from where he came from out of Judea, not actually living in Capernaum at the time, and that's why he was able to be invited to teach in the synagogue on that morning. So it was a very common thing to have happen. And Jesus did exactly that. He came to do one of the things that was on his to-do list, to preach and proclaim the gospel of God. 
Like Paul, Jesus would be quick to say, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. It was the work of Christ, and it's to be the work of the church. For remember, he says, it is by the foolishness of preaching that salvation will come. And so Jesus is setting that directive for the church by, his, by modeling that himself, that he actually is going from place to place teaching. But notice in verse 22, there was something different about the way Jesus taught. And it says, and they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So that word astonished, it means that the people were stricken with amazement at this point, even to the point of shock. Um, R.C. Sproul says that, that when, when Jesus spoke, the people were hanging on his every word. That's how magnetic and how uh, charismatic, if you will, his, his, his teaching was, how compelling it was. Uh, it was as if, you know, we might use in a vernacular, he knocked their socks off. Or, uh, you know, he blew them away with what he was saying. They had never heard anyone teach like this. And it caused quite a stir amongst them. And it says that he thought he taught with authority. And what that word, that a word authority is in Greek, it's, it's, a, it's a Greek word, exousia. And what that means is out of being or out of substance. And what that does is it speaks of the power and authority or influence that comes from within him of who he is. So being the incarnate God, being of the same substance and essence of the Father, his authority as a teacher was grounded in himself. Remember, God is the source of all truth. He is truth incarnate, Jesus is. What did he say in John uh, 14.6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He, he, he embodies truth. He is the embodiment of truth. And even Paul affirms this in Colossians 2.3, where he says, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So everything resides within Christ himself. We have the living word standing in this synagogue preaching to these people. That's exactly why they were astonished at the authority of his teaching. It came from the authority himself. The author of truth was the one who was speaking to them. As a result, his words were declared with such absolute conviction and wavering confidence that it stopped the hearers dead in their tracks. If you will, Jesus was the real deal. He was the genuine article. And we all know that. We, we have that experience. When we, when we know that somebody's putting us on versus somebody who is speaking with authority, we can tell the difference. And in this particular case, it was clear to everyone in the synagogue that day that what Jesus was saying was absolutely coming from someone who had nothing but authority. And he said that he, he did so not as the scribes. So they were contrasting with what they were used to already. The scribes and the guest teachers that regularly taught in the synagogue were nothing compared to Jesus. In fact, they didn't have any authority. He had it all, but they didn't have any authority. And what they often did, instead of looking to the scriptures, they often would talk about other teachers and their teachings about things. Now, in the synagogues, these, uh, these scribes, they were akin to like our PhDs these days. They were, they were like the ones that were very learned. They had the degrees. They, they, they studied the word. So they were learned expositors of, of the Old Testament. They knew it. 
And they were highly revealed for that, re revered for that reason, just like we do these days. We often give people who have a PhD after their name, right, a certain amount of respect because we think, oh, wow, they've got so much schooling. They must exactly know what they're talking about. <laughs> but it was their teachings. They unfortunately, what they did was they often supported what their claims were just by citing other scholars and other rabbinic traditions as opposed to citing the word of God itself. So their teaching became corrupted by, basically it was, it was like a, um, uh, just their, their, exactly, incestual, if you will. They, they were just grouping themselves in and citing people that they were in agreement with, but they were not looking to the authority of the scriptures for their teaching. And that again is what separated Jesus from these guys. They could tell the difference when they were listening to Jesus preach. In fact, over the course of time, they focused less on the actual teaching of God's word and instead focused their time expounding on all the different views that different rabbis had about a particular passage. And sadly, the teaching of the scribes was simply dead and, un and unable to move or stir the hearts of their hearers. And we find that, I think, very well today in extremely liberal churches, for sure. And it's getting more and more to be that way in event so-called evangelical churches with the rock star pastors that are giving their own take on things as opposed to just working through the text of the word and preaching what God has given to the church. But Jesus' teaching was majestic. It was life-stirring because it was proclaimed and conducted in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have testimony of this from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. It says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he was empowered by the, the Holy Spirit, and it's in that power that he came to declare the word. But as is often the case in life, when things start going well, it isn't long before an interruption or a challenge of some kind shows up. You know, you would think Jesus being God, right? You would think that he'd come and he'd have, probably have the easiest time in the world because he could have everything happen the way he wants it to happen. But clearly, actually, one of the one of the awesome things about Christ, God bless you, and knowing that He is God in the flesh, is that he, the, the account written about Him wasn't fabricated in such a way that He just has full power over everything in such a way that everything goes super easy and nothing is ever coming against Him. He, as the scriptures are clear to us, He experienced everything we experience. Right? He experienced every temptation every struggle, just as we do. And this is no different in his ministry. You would think that being God, he would come in and nothing would try to challenge him. But yet, he faces challenges right off the bat, and that's what we see here in his ministry. Verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now that word unclean spirit is... Uh, Basically talks about uh, an impure spirit, a morally lewd spirit, unclean in a ceremonial sense, if you're thinking in Jewish categories. And in this instance, it was clear that this man was demon-possessed. Now, demonic possession is mentioned very rarely in the Old Testament, and only briefly mentioned in the New Testament. And, and throughout church history, there aren't a lot of accounts you know, that, that talk about demon possession specifically. But when Jesus came on the scene, 
it's as if all hell broke loose, right? Because really, when you look at the scriptures, the more the most accounts of demon possession that are uh, captured for us in the scriptures are all within the ministerial time of Jesus. There's some little bit when the apostles go on in the book of Acts, but really the, the majority of this outward expression of demon possession is told to us in during the ministry of Jesus. <laughs> now, does that mean that demonic possession was an anomaly, something that was only allowed to erupt during Jesus's earthly ministry? And the answer to that is no, demon possession has always been a reality and it continues to be a reality, even in our day and age. It's just that it's the nature of Satan and his minions to more often than not work subtly and without drawing attention to himself and to their work. And we know that from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he says that he, uh, Paul tells us he poses as an angel of light. And he relish, what that means is that he relishes the position of hiding unnoticed in the middle of false religion. And he couches himself in a form of godliness. But yet it's within that form of godliness that he's sowing the seeds of untruth, of error, which is leading many astray. It's in that way that he can perpetuate error and corrupt the hearts of many. First uh, Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2 say this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Interestingly enough, within the body of Christ, that's what they called the Reformed doctrine, uh, the Reformed doctrines of grace, right? They called them doctrines of demons. So even there, the, the enemy tries to corrupt the mind of the body. But that, that is actually going on right now all around us in terms of that type of, of demonic influence within the world. And verse 24 says that this man, he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So it says that he cried out. And that's a word that it says that he screamed with strong emotion as if he was experiencing some intense agony. Essentially, the demon lost it, right, in the presence of Jesus. He lost all of his sensibilities, and on this occasion, he willingly blew his cover. Because again, as we, we know from Satan, he works usually surreptitiously and without anyone really knowing until it's too late. Normally, Satan works in that way, where he hides in the shadows. And he does his murderous work covertly, but in this instance, the demon exposes himself publicly and with great intensity. Now, the question is, why did he cry out? Why did he cry out in this way? And it's because nothing strikes terror in the heart of fallen creatures more than to be brought into the actual presence of holiness. The proper response to the holiness of God is fear and trembling. That is a proper response for all of us. And we see that in the scriptures. If you remember Isaiah in chapter 6, right, when he is given the vision of God, it says that he is undone. He's completely wiped out before the glory of God. This is just prior to his call to be the prophet. It's what had to happen to him. He had to have his, if you will, his legs, his knees cut up from underneath them so that he recognized who he was before the holiness of God. He said that I am a man 
of unclean lips. And I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He had a right recognition of his fallenness. And that's what being in, in, in the presence of holiness does. It exposes us for who we are. And that was Isaiah's proper response to holiness. He was completely annihilated spiritually before the Lord. And the same thing happened to Peter, if you remember, when Peter had that one occasion where he was out all night fishing and he had no success whatsoever. And here he comes in in the morning and he's beat after having labored all night. And Jesus says to him, as the audacity to say to him, go out and do it one more time and, and put your nets over to the side. And Peter's like, really, Lord? All right, for you, okay, I'll do it as you say. And he does it and he brings in a catch that is beyond measure where it says that the nets are bursting. And what's, what's Peter's response to that? In the, in the presence of holiness, he, he falls before the Lord and he, and he basically begs him to go away. He says, away from me, Lord, I'm an unclean man. I'm not a, I'm not a holy man at all. He says, actually, specifically, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That is a proper response to holiness. And in the same way, the vileness of this demon's uncleanness was exposed by the holiness of Jesus' presence and his powerful light being in the synagogue that day and the powerful proclamation of his word. Remember, as, as we've talked about before, it is sharper than a two-edged sword. And because he cannot repent in humility before the Lord, he does the only thing that he can do, lash out in fear. Because remember, there is no salvation for demons. Christ did not go to the cross for the demonic realm. There are no angels that will be saved. They are damned to hell forever. That is actually what hell has been made for, for the devil and his angels. So there is no chance that this demon will repent. So he does the only thing that he can do, and he just screams out. It reminded me when I was a kid of, um, I had a neighbor that they were always doing things in the wild. They would go hunting and fishing and catch snakes and bring them home and drove my mom crazy because we always had snakes in the garden and stuff like that. But one of the things that they did when they were fishing is they, their dad, he worked for Argini, and he created these probes. They're like metal stakes with wires attached to them. And he would plug them in and he would stick the probes into the ground. Because what that did was it sent an electrical charge into the ground and it would cause the worms to come to the surface. And that's exactly almost what I saw that is just an, an earthly analogy of what's going on here. The holiness of God was forcing the worms of the demons to come to the top. that They could not stay hidden any longer. Or just like, you know, when you have a rock and you, and you lift it up, right? What happens to all the little bugs in there? They scurry at the presence of light. So that's exactly what's happening here. The scriptures tell us that the mind that is set on the flesh, which is the carnal mind, that that flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So the flesh in and of itself abhors holiness. It does not want to be exposed. And this explains why the light of the gospel and the light of God's truth experiences such resistance when it's declared, because the carnal mind hates it. I mean, why is it that the gospel doesn't have this transforming worldwide effect over everybody? Because we hate it. We don't want it. And if we're left to ourselves, we know that we would resist it to our death. We hate it that much. So the demon says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? 
What business do we have with each other? Says the NAS. In one sense, the demon lashes out in a provocative and confrontational way. By referring to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, he's trying to demean the Savior publicly. He's joining the bandwagon of the Jewish leaders who mock the idea that the Messiah would come for such an unimportant and obscure town as Nazareth was. And, he, and they ask, have you come to destroy us? So in the next instance, after challenging Jesus in a, in, a, in a confrontational way like this, the demon's provocative stance is tempered by the realization that he's standing face to face with his judge. The demon knows that he is irredeemable and his fate of being cast into the lake of fire is, is certain and irrevocable. Matthew 25, 41 says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So he knows that's going to be his fate. And so this demon panics when he comes into the presence of his judge, wondering if perhaps his time is up right now. Because he currently at this time, and we, we know that to be the case currently, that God has allowed the demonic realm a certain sense of freedom to do their bidding, to do their work. <clears throat> And that's a very scary thought to know that they're actively involved. But they also know that there is a day coming when that will end. And then the, the, the demon also refers, he says, to us. Now, were there several demons in this man, like the Legion? Remember the Legion man in, in Mark chapter 5 that was living in the catacombs, in the, in the tombs? And he was, he was indwelt by a legion of demons, which was thousands. Or was maybe like Mary Magdalene, right? She, it's also told of us in um, uh, Luke chapter 8 that she had seven demons within her. So there is occasion, there are accounts of multiple demon possession, or accounts of demon possession by multiple demons. So when he says, have you come to destroy us? Mo the majority report for most commentators about this is that he's really only, there's really only one demon at work here. But when he says us, he is talking in a representative way about all the demons that, of course, are at work with him in our earthly realm. Not that that's a major point, but it's just uh, from, from the way that the passage is, is uh, relayed to us, it would seem that there's only one demon at work within this particular person. And then he cries out and he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. John Calvin saw this as an attempt by the demon to plant in the minds of the men the idea that some kind of secret understanding or alliance existed between Jesus and the devil. So you've got a lot of people that are in the synagogue, right, including the rulers, and they're listening to what's going on. And when the demon says this, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, Calvin is, is, is thinking that perhaps what the demon was doing was trying to sound like Jesus and this demon had some connection already, which would already begin to... Uh, feed their already uh, uh, burgeoning idea that Jesus is not from God. He's actually of the devil. Because remember, they, they say that about him later on, that, he, that they said, you cast demons out of people by the power of Beelzebul, which is the power of demons. They were trying to, to put Jesus in an extremely negative, demonic light. And so that's what Calvin is thinking that might be going on here with the demon. By this insinuation, he, this insinuation, 
he seeks to shroud God's glory in his own darkness and taint Jesus' character at the same time. Most likely, though, he exposed Jesus to try to subdue him. Uh, the thought is that when, uh, in, especially in, in this culture, at these times, revealing the name of an adversary was a sign of submission. Uh, we see that in the account of Jacob wrestling with the angel, right, with the Lord, where he asks the angel's name, right, and the Lord doesn't give him his name. In fact, he brings him to the point where he makes him cry uncle, if you will. <laughs> so there was, there was that aspect of it within the culture at that time. When you revealed one's name to an adversary, it was a sign of submission. But Jesus rebukes him. He doesn't go for this. And in verse 25, it says, be silent and come out of him. So in other words, he's basically saying, be muzzled, shut your mouth. I don't want to hear from you anymore. And in doing so, Jesus demonstrates four things, or he accomplishes four things. First, he exerts and demonstrates his full control over the situation. Fully sovereign, the Lord is. Nothing throws him. He's in control. Second, he refuses to accept the public testimony of his deity by the power of darkness. He's here to call his own people after himself to proclaim the truth about him. He doesn't need the work of the, de of the devil to do any of, their, of, of that work. And he shuts his mouth up. Thirdly, he maintains this idea early in his ministry of the messianic secret. The first half of Mark's gospel, the secret is kept where no one is really led on to, to know that Jesus is the Messiah. It's in the second half of the gospel that this truth is revealed to the disciples. And the reason is because Jew, the Jewish ideas of Messiahship were triumph, triumphalistic, meaning that they, again, as we've talked before, they wanted a conquering hero. They wanted a military leader to come in and take charge. That's what they were looking for. They were not looking for one that was going to forgive them of their sins. There was a worldly view of Messiah. And if Jesus accepted this title prematurely, that would have led the people into nationalistic dreams and not God's ordained plan. And we saw that even in, in the Gospel of John, where there are occasions where they want to make Jesus their king. That's why he had to depart from them, it tells us. That the crowds actually started stirring each other up, saying, we want to make this guy king. He would have no part of that until the time was right. And then lastly, Jesus accomplished the great task for this man that he freed him from his bondage to Satan. And verse 26 tells us that, And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. So that whole idea of convulsing means to to, to tear, to render, to convulse. The, the demon departed from the man in a, in, a, in a violent way. So there must have been some type of, of, of dramatic uh, way that that manifested himself, possibly threw him to the ground or what. Luke tells us that the man was not hurt by the same account. So the man was not injured in any way physically, but he was definitely distressed at the expulsion of the, uh, the demon. The control and influence of the powers of darkness over this man, or excuse me, over a soul, is often not broken without some sort of struggle. It never comes easy, if you will, when you're working to extract an enemy. 
He's not one that goes quietly. Satan and his minions, they tend to throw a tantrum whenever a soul is freed from its captivity, much like a spoiled child is for, is, it will act out when a toy is taken from them, right? Because if you have to think about it, what is going on in the demonic realm is that the demons, the satanic world, is at work holding captives in their power. And whenever one is freed, they lose one of these captives. And they don't give them up easily. It reminded me of that scene in Lord of the Rings with King Theoden, right? He's possessed by Saruman. And uh, Gandalf comes in and, and challenges him and then forces him out of there. But if you remember, it doesn't happen easily. There's a, there's a struggle, and he finally wins, and he tosses Saruman across the floor. But that's, a, again, it's just a good word picture that, that we can have in mind in terms of that's what's going on in the dark recesses of this world. Satan is truly clutching those that he has in his power at this time. And it says that it came out of him. And what that tells us is that when Jesus issues a command, the demons obey. There is no negotiation. Jesus has full authority over the demonic realm. Remember, the scriptures give us that word that Jesus is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is talking about the angelic realm. And of course, he's Lord of hosts of, of all of the angels that have not fallen. But by extension, he is also the Lord over all of those that have fallen. They have nothing over our Lord. It was divine power that cast Satan and his angels out of hell, out of, out of heaven, excuse me, and it will be divine power that will cast them into hell ultimately. And in verse 27 says, and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So they were just totally floored, dumbfounded. They've never seen anything like this. It was completely something that took them by surprise. And it says that they questioned among themselves. They, they examined it together. They, they, they talked about it. They debated They're trying to reason. What in the world did we just witness? What was this? It just went on. From a worldly perspective, their reaction makes sense. If all they had been used to for so long was dry, lifeless, and the speculative musings of learned men about God's word, uh, then the spectacle that occurs when it happens, it would get them all wound up, and they'd start, again, doing what they were doing, wondering what's going on. It would almost make them giddy. If you notice, people love to play with the idea of the supernatural. People are, are attracted to things like tarot cards and horoscopes and haunted houses and Ouija boards. All of these things, they like to play thinking about that supernatural aspect of life. They're attracted to it. I had a friend uh, a while back that he would... He would often go, if you remember Chuck Missler, Chuck Missler had that ministry that he would come and he would often talk about current events in the light of scripture. And he drew big crowds. But it, as it was at Calvary Chapel at the time, every time that he would speak, they would have a worship time of, time of songs beforehand. And my friend would always want to go see Chuck Missler to hear about these tantalizing things, but he always waited outside the building until after the music was over. Then he'd mm -hmm. go in and listen. He wasn't there to hear the Lord. He wasn't there to seek what God had to say. He just wanted his ears tickled by this realm that he had some fascination with. 
And that's how it is with many people in this world. They, they play with the idea of the darkness. And boy, if they knew the truth about the darkness, I think they would be run far and far from that. Sadly, it puts on display the truth regarding these people's spiritual condition. Instead of reacting with mere astonishment and inquisitiveness in the presence of holiness, when this happens like with something like Jesus, they should have fallen prostrate before the Lord in humility and with fear and trembling. You know, I'm just speaking of the people within the synagogue, of course. When they saw this happen, they should have had the same reaction that Isaiah and Peter had at holiness before them. They should, themselves should have said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And then verse 28 ends, it tells us, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. We can understand that. This amazing thing happened in Capernaum. Did you hear what happened up there? Word spread, and thus begins the exciting journey for our Lord through his ministry. So as we end, four reminders. Um, as I mentioned already, Jesus is sovereign over Satan, and he will fully destroy his works. We know that there was already the death blow given to Satan at the cross. Uh, Colossians 2.15 tells us that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So when Christ was on that cross, he gave the demonic realm its death blow. They were just on borrowed time until the Lord consummates everything. So Jesus is sovereign over all that Satan does. And because he's sovereign, that means that Jesus can deliver anyone from Satan's grip. Anyone that is currently in his camp right now, that is held by the chains of, of blindness and unbelief, they absolutely can be delivered just as this man was. And then thirdly, our calling is not to exorcism. Right? Now, we hear that a lot amongst our charismatic brethren, right, about getting involved in exorcisms. We had neighbors that had somebody go through their house when they first moved in and did an exorcism prayer in every room to cast any remaining demons that were left in the house out. Right? That's not our call. He doesn't call us to exorcism. He calls us to evangelization. He calls us to evangelize the lost. It's the power of God, the power of the gospel of God that brings salvation and that drives the enemy away. We have no power within ourselves. The Holy Spirit uses his word to make that transformative work in the lives of people. And then finally, our calling is to warfare. Right? So it's not just simply proclamation, but we are to put on the full armor of God, as Mark reminded us last week, just before communion. We're to be strong in the Lord and in his light. We're to put on the full armor of God, and we're to stand firm against the scheme of the devil. Right? So that means that's active. That means we're facing it. We're not running from it. We're encountering the evil and the darkness as it comes into our lives and as we see it around us. And how do we do that? Well, he delineates it in Ephesians 6. We're to put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. We're to put, as he says, shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So we're armed with the gospel itself. We're to have the shield of faith, knowing that it's that very shield that the Lord has given us to quench the fiery darts of the enemy, which will come at us as we stand for truth. He's given us the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, his word, exactly what we're doing this morning. And then the last two, praying in the spirit at all times. That is active. That's work. 
any of us knows how, you know, I sit in my chair here and I find myself struggling against sleep when I want to pray. You know, there's, there's a constant buffeting of the body and the mind that does not want us to enter into that realm. But that's exactly what he calls us to, praying in the spirit at all times. And then this, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication with all the saints. So that we, we forget that. This is an ongoing thing. We're to persevere in this battle. It's not just a, a you know, it's just not a couple of rounds and then we, we take a seat. It's a daily, daily effort against the kingdom of darkness because that's what we're facing until our Lord comes. That's what he's given the church to do. That's why the, the reformers were, were, were great and referring to the church militant. If you remember that, that word, that phrasing that talked about an active militant church on the earth conducting the work of its king until its king arrives. And that's how we should be. And then he's going to bring us to that place. We will, we're, we, we will be the church triumphant at his return. So it's great. We, the awesome thing about a passage like this is that it reminds us again that we win, right? We win in the end. We know that we are on the winning side. We have, we have the, uh, the Savior who will not suffer defeat. He willingly suffered defeat for our sakes so that we could be washed and we could be entering into fellowship with him and be preserved by him forever. For eternity and so we look forward to the day that we will be together as his people with everyone that the lord rescues from the hands of the enemy father thank you for your word and i pray that you would please work this truth into our hearts that we would respond in faith not only by declaring the gospel lord that many who hear might believe but that we would do as you've called us to lord to put on the full armor and to stand, Lord, in your power against the powers of darkness. Thank you for the victory we have in Christ Jesus. You have not left us alone. You, Lord Jesus, are. You are the Lord of hosts. And um, we just thank you for that truth that encourages us and gives us the strength to endure the battle every day. Praise you for the victory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.